Hi, I'm Andrew. Welcome to the Review of Two Dice Geoengineering podcast. We're here today to talk to Britta Clark about a paper with a very simple premise, how to argue about solar geoengineering. If you want to come and get an argument about solar geoengineering, Review of Two Dice Geoengineering podcast is definitely the right place. Welcome to the show, Britta. Hi, thanks for having me. So during our preamble, you've forewarned me that you have the tanky politics of Kevin, who have, who's been on our show already. So you have some ideas to talk about, which I think I might not like. Is that right? That might be true. I'm sure Kevin and I disagree about some things. And I think the paper, at least, that we'll be talking about today maybe doesn't get into those those tanky ideas so much. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm fairly new to the solar geoengineering space, and this the paper is more of a, a ground clearing exercise to say like, let's take a step back and think about how we should even be having these discussions before getting into the potentially tanky politics. Okay, so just for people who aren't familiar with the mid twentieth century Soviet history, do you want to give us a little explanation as to what exactly a tanky is? I was going to ask you that, actually. <laughs> I hadn't heard that term. Well, tankies, those who supported the Stalinist or post-Stalinist invasion of the uh, the Central European states, the kind of 20th century version of the Ukraine wars against Hungary and Czechoslovakia, which have been, uh, to some extent, largely forgotten, I think, about from uh, a lot of uh, people's understanding of the Cold War. We kind of forget that the Eastern Bloc was involved in some pretty nasty wars, which were not not dissimilar to Ukraine, but the difference being that uh, in Soviet times, the West was a lot more reluctant to get involved in what was seen as being the Soviet Union's backyard. So now we've moved on to different times. I think the um, the issue that we've had with uh, the Ukraine war is that the Russian leadership of today was expecting some a reception for its military excursions not dissimilar from what it received in um, the mid-20th century and was a little surprised to discover this didn't happen. So anyway, as a traditional review or two aside, we don't need to get too deep into that, but sufficient to say that uh, the the general centrist theme of review or two is not fully reflected in uh, the politics of surprise and others. (laughs) Fair enough. Um, But we'd like to hear about what your politics are regarding solid geoengineering specifically, because we want to know what we've got wrong. Uh, Your paper seems to deal with the uh, concept of technologies of procrastination, which is a phrase used by Duncan McLaren in some of his work. And it's also that's been that's based on um, earlier concepts which have been kicked around by other people with different phraseology, looking at the fundamentally what's called the moral hazard problem and uh, when we every time moral hazard problem comes up I always like to point out that moral hazard is not one thing but two I've done a paper on that and uh, one is uh, basically uh, so moral hazard is malfeasance and morale hazard is recklessness and they're two fundamentally different concepts there's a long literature on that stretching back several hundred years but in the, the colloquial expression of that in uh, geoengineering discourse it's conflated and simplified down into a single idea, which is basically that uh, discussion of solar geoengineering or, in fact, carbon dioxide removal or, as I've come to learn, any technology I do not like is moral hazard because it prevents the the one perfect true solution that is the solution I like. Um, is, that, <laughs> is, that, is, that a, uh, 
good tracy as the dilemma in the discourse or do i do i misunderstand and and cynically oversimplify this in in the discourse or or my paper specifically are you well i think in general i'm in total agreement that the the word moral hazard is has about 50 different meanings and people are using it in a lot of a lot of different ways and actually means something like i think we should we should think more about like the the phrase i use in the paper is anticipated future wrongdoing so it makes okay. clear that it's there's a there's a broad range of different wrongs that people are worried about and it's not just mitigation inhibition it's like termination shock or you know global north countries using solar geoengineering to set the global thermostat at whatever their preferred temperature is or those sorts of complaints okay so um <laughs> before we get too deep into the weeds i don't know much about you or your uh, body of work so do you want to give us a, a little tracy which particular rock you crawled out from underneath before you <laughs> came onto the the uh, shining towers of reviewer two to do this podcast sure the, the pinnacle of my career uh so it's a pinnacle of everyone's career coming on the <laughs> podcast. I'll I'll quit after this. Yeah, sure. So I I'm originally I'm from Vermont. That's the rock I crawled out from under. Currently a PhD candidate in the philosophy department at Harvard. Vermont's very the- nice, as far as I understand. This is one of these posh sort of New England places that people go to in the fall to go and see all the colourful leaves, isn't it? Yeah, leaf leaf peepers is the term. Yep. <laughs> Um, it is a very nice, very nice state. Uh, finally getting some snow at the moment, so that's exciting. Uh, so yeah, at the moment, I'm working on my PhD in the philosophy department. Before that, I did a master's in New Zealand at University of Otago. And my work has always been very motivated by being worried about climate change. I'm specifically interested in questions of intergenerational justice and how to think about making long-term or policy decisions that have really long-term time horizons or long-term implications. Well, I find um, uh, this field is is split. So you have the political right in this field talks about long-termism and effective Mm -hmm. altruism and the political left talks about exactly the same thing, but uses the word intergenerational justice. And as far as I can tell, the only difference between the two concepts is tribal signaling. You have to use the right term to make sure that you appreciate, mm. that people appreciate you're on your their side. And if you use the wrong term, yet talk about the same concepts, you're an evil, hateful person who has only bad <laughs> thoughts. Is that roughly correct? Um, I think I think there's some more substantive difference. I mean, I think that like, both parties share a con- concern, which I think is appropriate for thinking about like the long-term time horizons of decisions that we make now. But I, I think there's a little bit more substantive signaling going on in the like long-termism versus intergenerational justice terminology. Okay. Well, if you could briefly the... explain to me what the difference between those two concepts are, because I'm sure, sure. sure as to what the, the difference is between them. I mean... I think this is changing a bit, but typically people who deem themselves long-termists are far more of the utilitarian persuasion. So they're thinking about how to maximize the aggregate sum of benefits across all of time. And the the like long-termist insight is, oh, look, like if we look farther into the future, there will be 
billions and billions and billions of people, far more people than there are currently existing today. So we should be caring a lot more. If we care about maximizing the sum of welfare, we should be caring a lot more about what happens in the future than what happens now. Uh, and the, Surely that's very similar to intergenerational equity. I mean, I don't really understand. I the think the, so the intergenerational justice perspective, I think, tends to use the language of like rights a bit more. So it's it's more thinking about, OK, what if we're making. Oh, I, understand the, I understand the linguistic differences. I understand yeah. the linguistic differences. Right. But the problem with linguistics is they're often used, you know, it's signaling all the way down. Right. What right. I'm trying to get my head around is what's the actual difference in terms of what people want and advocate for? Because yeah. as far as I can tell, it's all basically just looking after the children and the grandchildren. It doesn't seem to be a lot more complicated than that. And, and mm. no academics like to use big, long words to describe <laughs> very simple concepts because they have to, because otherwise everyone realizes. Yeah, how are they going to job? Right, exactly. Exactly, yeah. But, I think um, it's the, the, the maximizing premise that tends to be probably the one that's most in disagreement between the those of the supposedly long-termist camp and the intergenerational justice camp so the the long-termist people think like there is there is something you know they disagree about what it is maybe it's like welfare maybe it's gdp maybe it's something more complicated and they think that thing ought to be maximized and then there's the those who speak in terms of intergenerational justice aren't at base concerned with maximizing the sum of anything their their concern was saying okay look, we don't want to sacrifice, or it's just one way of putting it, for instance, but like, we don't want to sacrifice some super important interest in eh, habitable climate for the sake of, you know, some more trivial interest, like flying across the Atlantic to present at conferences or whatever. So the the reasoning... Who would do that? Eh? I, mean... <laughs> I know. Shh, don't tell them. I'm, I'm guilty. I'm guilty of that. So... So I think that's, I mean, that's one of the, I would say, like, deepest substantive philosophical disagreements okay. between those those two camps. I'm still not uh, convinced I'm get a Rizzler between them. But anyway, <laughs> talk, talk to me more about what you'd like to argue about, about solo engineering, because I've got an hour to argue with you. And I absolutely sure. love arguing. I, I love arguing as well. So, I mean, I'd, I'd love to share a bit about the paper and, and uh, see what you okay, think. Okay, I'm with it then. I'm not stopping you. <laughs> sure. So the paper it's called how, how to argue about solar geoengineering so that should sort of set the set the stage being just the, this... before before we get into the into the weeds just give me a bit of sure. context because I mean it's obviously got quite a provocational title right <laughs> and it implies that you've you've kind of come to this with you know a not a non-zero amount of initial thought right so what, what made you write a paper which has got such an obviously provocational title albeit an interesting <laughs> Well, I started my work at Harvard thinking about climate change and intergenerational justice. And so just to be sorry, just to just to put distraction on my distraction. Sure, at sure. Harvard, where are you? Because there's various different schools of in Harvard University, and they all particular different. In the philosophy department. Okay, so you're not in the Harvard Kennedy School where Scopex lives or anything like that, then? No, no. I mean, I spend time talking to those people, but I'm not. That's not my my home. Those base. people. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Kevin Surprise. I don't want to get turn this into Kevin Surprise fanzine, <laughs> I but he did Kevin Surprise. <laughs> I think I, I yeah, will. You sure. haven't met him. I have not. Oh, met him. Should be. Just you know, 
in this post-COVID era, I genuinely have trouble remembering who I physically met. It seems so unimportant <laughs> these days. I don't think I've met Kevin Spryce face-to-face, but having spoken to him extensively on a podcast and enjoyed his company and dialogued with him about a few things, I feel like rather know the guy. And that's the fact that I'm not genuinely unsure whether I've ever met him face-to-face. It doesn't <laughs> seem that important anymore, which is a bit weird. But anyway, the um, yeah, Kevin Spryce is interesting because he's done like a kind of anthropology of Harvard geoengineers, which is a kind of weird sort of turning up into a university and finding out that you're the lab rat, right? So right, right, that's, the exactly. na- that's, that's the nature of Kevin's work. So he will yeah. be pro- poking, prodding and studying us and we should all be feel much the better for it. So I, for <laughs> one, uh, welcoming our new tanky overlords. So um, you, you, you look at this from a philosophy point of view. Yeah. I've written a bit of philosophy. I won't claim to know much about it, right? So what, what's the sort of the fundamental concept that you're bringing here? What, what's, what's the kind of methodological framework that you're using to analyse this, this question about the way that we discuss solar geoengineering? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think the, the sort of starting point of the paper, just to like back up a bit more, is I was, I was doing this work on intergenerational justice and thinking about different theories of that. and always try to have this, you know, I like getting into the theoretical weeds, but I also always try to have my work be somewhat connected to policy questions on the ground and being at Harvard where there's obviously the a lot of solar geoengineering research going on. Uh, I just started attending their events and, and going to their stuff. And in my mind, solar geo is, it raises really, really acutely a lot of these intergenerational questions. For I think the, just, we just, can talk about. just just to pick up on one thing, you said you yeah, yeah. going to their events. I think I, mean, I think that's a really really important point for people who might be on the fringes of this subject. I don't know if you and I really don't understand who listens to this podcast, right? But like, there are, <laughs> yeah, there are probably quite a, well, there are quite a few people. We've had about ten thousand downloads, which is not trivial, right? Um, but there's probably a lot of people who are kind of interested in the subject but are not involved directly. And I think one thing that's really important, and I just like to get this across. Never said this before. What I want to just get across is to explain to people, right, a lot of academia is just turning up, right? You, you know, it's, it's designed to be welcoming. People want you there. They want to hear from you. They want you to turn up and listen to their events. So if you're in a kind of a peripheral position where you kind of might be interested in the subject, but you haven't worked on it or anything like that, just turn up. Sign up to an Eventbrite event. See what's on the calendars. You know, follow at Geoengineering one on Twitter. We've got, you know, virtually every event that exists in this field will go through that Twitter account. Uh, and just turn up and, and listen to what people are going to say. They want you there. So if you're on the if you're on the peripheral periphery of this field, you turn up, get involved. People want you there, and you know you're part of what will make the future of the field. So don't be shy. Turn up. That's how I got started. I agree. Yeah. No. My me as well. And anyway, so another I, thing. Oh, go ahead. Sorry, just one thing I want to interject with. David Keith has done a similar bit of work to the one that you're describing, where he he's also looking at how to argue about solar engineering. And he's done. I don't have the paper title to hand, but he's tried yeah, to know, sort of frame. Can, can you Google it while we're here? Because I'd like to. He's basically tried to somewhere to systematize the space of disagreements, right? Yep. So the, the yeah, his is a bit different. I'm trying. To I'm not trying that. to say it's the same. I'm saying he's addressing a similar set of problems in that yeah. he's trying to, to describe how, you know, trying to to list and and formalize everything that people disagree about in the space which is quite a bold challenge right or every conceptual or philosophical disagreement 
Yeah, definitely. But the end result is is quite a handy little thumb-sized guide to people hate each other and at each other at meetings, which is <laughs> um, if, if people it's are the... shouting at each other in the bar after five pints at the end of a conference, it will be about one <laughs> of the things. David can tell you meeting. why. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's it's called towards constructive disagreement and rock throwing about solar geoengineering. <laughs> you made that up, didn't you? I, I made up the rock throwing part, but it is called towards constructive disagreement about geoengineering. His is his is more a catalog of here are the debates, here are the sort of perspectives that people are coming from. You know, there's the moral hazard concern, the termination shock concern, the like global poor pro argument, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, um, Look, um, I, I'm not. I'm not saying that the work is novel. In it's quite interesting because I had a conversation with David Keith about somebody else's review paper, and he said that review papers are easy; anyone can write them. Or words for that effect. <laughs> then he's done a review paper that we're talking about. So, yeah, I think it's very helpful. I mean, I think it's very helpful. I especially think just it's a good... to see how someone you know who's very influential in the field is is understanding the the contours of the debate. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I've been too lazy to read the paper, but. <laughs> I'm, I'm aware of its existence and it seems like a rather good idea. So I'm, I'm happy to give it some indirect praise. So how does, how does what you've done differ from the way that he's approached the problem? I don't want to you know, make everything about David Keith, but you know, it's, it's a, an in, interesting point of reference to, to look at yeah, sure. different authors approaching a you know, fundamentally fairly similar problem in two different ways. So where are the points of difference? Yeah, so like I said, his is, is more like cataloging the different substantive disagreements um and mine and and it'll be it'll be easier to understand this if i explain it a little bit but like mine is is more about developing a framework for argumentation so okay to say a bit more about that the the starting point for the paper is just this observation that i had as i was attending events and and reading um, reading more on this topic as part of my work on intergenerational justice, just this observation, I guess it's a two-part observation. The first is, is look, many of these debates over solar geo, or all of them, I think, are making assumptions about the future actions of political actors. So if we knew, if we knew, like, say you, you, Andrew, had a crystal ball, and you could, you could see in the future that there would be massive termination shock and world wars and all the sorts of things people worry about. And you knew that for certain, right? We probably wouldn't be quite as excited about, people wouldn't be quite as excited about solar geo research now, right? So, so our- Well, possibly. I mean, whether the question, I mean, David Keith has raised this issue. I remember him raising this at the original band conference, which is now a decade ago. It's actually very, very old. Um, and uh, he was saying that, the um the the issue is whether you know if we research now does it prevent chaotic deployment in the future it's not necessarily about whether it makes deployment less or more likely it, the, you know the the foundation of that argument is whether or not it makes sensible deployment more likely as opposed to stupid deployment right so just, yeah, just yeah. not doing the research doesn't necessarily stop anyone doing the, the deployment it might just mean that people just do it very badly no, I agree on that point. It's just it's it's even a more basic observation. It's just like our our debates over solar geo make these assumptions about the make some assumptions about the future actions of political actors. And the the crystal ball example is just to show like 
if we knew for certain that solar geo research would end up with these catastrophic impacts, we wouldn't be as interested in in researching it. To my mind, knowing that something is disastrous is a really good reason to research it, right? Not because you necessarily want to do it, but the more you... Like, I'll give you an example, a very concrete example. Alan Robock's work on nuclear winter mm-hmm. has, to my mind, made it more less likely that we'll have a nuclear war because people are now much more aware that even limited use of nuclear weapons would have catastrophic global consequences. Now, you know, we could argue all day about exact, exactly to what extent that's true, but you know, I think that the climatology of nuclear weapons is now seen as being perhaps even the primal effect, right? So, you know, that's an example of where knowing about something and putting that effort into researching it means that we're probably less likely to experience horrible consequences and do stupid things than if we didn't do the research, right? Yeah, but that I think that example is sort of assuming that the future is open in some some relevant sense. So I'm I'm just what, saying like what do you mean by that? that, I'm, not, that I'm not disagreeing. I just don't understand that researching nuclear winter would make make nuclear winter less likely to happen. And the opening example, I'm just the, the starting point is like, or the crystal ball example is saying, look, we know for certain there's no making it less or more likely that these catastrophic impacts will occur. We just we just know this. Like crystal ball example, you know, philosopher's thought experiment here, right? The point is just to show like in that example, we're making an assumption about the future future actions of political actors when it comes to solar geo. And and in that example, we know that terrible, terrible things are going to happen, right? Okay. So and so your so, argument is we don't need to research technologies if we think they're likely to be harmful. That's your central no, no, no. So, so I can just back up a little more. So the, the starting point is this observation, right? That debates over solar geo make assumptions about the future act- actions of political actors. And then I see the, the main paper as having two parts. So the first part says, look, when we're arguing about solar geoengineering, we should be making assumptions about the future actions of political actors that are, our assumptions should be both accurate and consistent. Um, So I think like accuracy sort of speaks for itself. We don't want to reason on assumptions that are inaccurate. And consistency also, it's like you don't want to assume assume one thing about the future actions of political actors in one moment, and then later on in your argument, assume something else. Um, So I think those- You seem very concerned. You seem very concerned about about political future political actors, and I'm, I'm trying to understand why this is. I mean, yeah, I, I don't in my own work or my own thinking, I don't really kind of care about how people might use it. So I just, I'm to some extent trusting, and to quote Hemingway, you know, the best way to make people trustworthy is to trust them. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of scientists take the viewpoint that they're not there to second guess future politicians' actions; they're there to just put the facts in place and make sure that people have got the tools to make the judgments that they want to work make i mean you're describing seems to be something where you're much more there's much more gamesmanship you're you're coming up with information which is designed to or judging what information you are and aren't going to make available based on your uh and to the anticipated responses of people you know potentially quite far into the future and quite a long way outside of your own wheelhouse i'm not sure how 
you I, I don't think I could do that. I mean, you might just be a lot cle- more clever than I am. But <laughs> I mean, I, I don't think I can second guess politicians in 25 years time. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, that's a good question, but I, I think it's sort of impossible to avoid making those assumptions. So even in, in what you said, you're saying like, oh, I'm trusting future political actors to do what they ought to do with. Well, quite, kind of. To give, to give a slightly more nuanced answer, I'm assuming they're going to be better at doing their jobs in 25 years time than I am doing their jobs now. You know, I, I wouldn't like to try and work out what the president of America, who, you know, is currently 13 years old, will end up doing, right? I don't think I'm really going to know. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not saying I like every American president, but probably they're all better at being American president than I would have been. I mean, maybe not, but, you know. Yeah. Basically, basically what I'm trying to do is, is dissuade people from hubris, you know, just because you can imagine ways in which people can do their jobs badly doesn't mean that someone can anticipate you know, a correct or the correct way of doing some future job well. Do you see what I mean? Can you say that? Rephrase that, maybe. Well, what what I'm saying is like the premise that you're that you're working on is mm-hmm. that you are going to be um, doing you're, you're going to be anticipating the way that someone does a job, or someone makes a set of decisions, and mm-hmm. inherent in that consideration is that your opinion on this matters because you've got a good idea of how they should do their job. Whereas my argument is pretty simple. I just, I don't know what the currently 13-year-old president of America will do in 25 or 30 years' time. And whatever decision he or she happens to make, I'm pretty damn sure that me making it in a different country a quarter of a century in advance with none of the information that he or she will be making that decision using, I'm just not going to make a very good decision. So I don't really try and game the future in that regard. I don't try and, mm. you know, work out how to manipulate the actors in a quarter of a century. I just put a, information out there and put the arguments out there and, you know, trust the future, as it were, right? Yeah. I don't we all end so up trusting about... our children in the end. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think it's so much about manipulating the future. At least the, the argument in the paper is more saying like, Look, it's it's inevitable that we have to make these. This is where the crystal ball example comes in. It's like we are always making assumptions about how the technology will be used. And those assumptions are they range from really and I think you see this in the the debate over solar geoengineering. The assumptions range from really pessimistic on the one hand, so people worried about termination shock and and morale hazard sorts well, of well if i can give you a reflection on how i see it being used i mean i i, I see it being fiercely tribalistic right people yeah. who view solar geoengineering as a product of not to their tribe view mm-hmm. it as an unalloyed harm people who view solar geoengineering as being a product of their tribe view it as being you know not necessarily an unalloyed good but you know broadly speaking a good you know the constant criticism which is you know largely baseless as i can see is that solar geoengineering is a a tool of the the capitalist hegemons. No one on this podcast ever be able to tell me whether I've been pronouncing that correctly or not. And I've <laughs> always been too. Is I've he- heard hegemony or is it hegemony? I've never quite worked out whether it's a soft G or a hard G. I, I think the first one typically, but hegemon. Right. Okay. Basically, if people view solid geoengineering as a product of capitalist hegemony, then they think it's awful. I mean, just as a matter of record, it isn't. It's a product of a bunch of generally hand-wringing 
doom-monger scientists in, <laughs> to a large extent. I mean, no uh, global capitalist cabal has come and given me lots of money to work on it, and I don't see much uh, evidence to the contrary. I think, you know, Scopex has had some funding, but mm-hmm. the, the world of SRM is an awful lot bigger than Scopex, and Scopex haven't really, you know, they've talked a good game, they haven't played one yet, so... I think yeah, people yeah. get a bit too excited about exactly what they've done with a, a few quid that they've managed to persuade billionaires to give them. It's not really defined the game as far as I'm concerned. But people who are focused on that element, you know, like the lovely Mr. Kevin Surprise, who I generally, genuinely do like, even though disagreeing with him about almost everything, um, <laughs> he he's very focused on this aspect of, uh, of, of SRM. And I just, I'm very relaxed about it. I just don't see that as being the dominant narrative in terms of how SRM is conceived and often funded. Um, but people who, you know, people who don't view SRM as being a product of this uh, evil capitalist baddies, they generally see it in a very different way. I mean, uh, Right, I and I think that's kind yeah. of what I'm, I'm diagnosing is saying the people who are against Solgio pretty harshly tend to be making more pessimistic assumptions about how the technology will be used in the future so they're they're in the paper but, I call it. are they i mean are they are they really doing it? i mean what i see is not so much people criticizing how the technology is used but they're criticizing who the technology is used by fundamentally what seems the core disagreement seems to be nothing to do with the actual use of the technology but it, it seems to be criticizing the actual use so that they're they're predicting that the technology will be used to postpone the speed of the energy transition, that it will not. Well, yeah, but, but in a more general, in a in a more general sense, I think what they're arguing is technology is going to be used to to sustain and support a power structure that they regard as fundamentally unjust. You know, it's right. fundamentally a woke. It's fundamentally a wokeist argument, right? And I'm, you know, I'm trying to be charitable. I don't think anyone can describe me as woke, but um, <laughs> but I think that there, you know, there are some aspects of wokery that you know are at least helpful and informative in some circumstances if not you know comprehensively accurate and so where where i think that you know wokery does bear some scrutiny is to say well you know is, is srm potentially being used as a tool of a technocratic capitalist hegemony you know or could it be used that way in future even if it's not conceived of by these people at the moment you know the, the funding is mainly well, the interest in the subject is mainly academic as opposed to commercial at the moment, much less so CDR, where there's an awful lot of money going into the space. So if you want to find your global capitalist hegemonic <laughs> cabal, then you need to look no further than CDR. But, you know, it's still, right. they're still active. But am I, am I right in that regard and in, in, in thinking that, that people's yeah, I think some, fear some of the technology like is about... Straying far from what I'm trying to do in the paper, but... I think I thought you just want like, an argument not, about solid engineering. Yeah, you want you want to argue about capitalism, which I feel like unfortunately this paper in particular does not get to, but Well what no, I am not really trying to do that. What I'm saying is that people <laughs> who are against solar geoengineering appear to be very focused on arguing against capitalism or worry about this technology or fear about it is is driven by the fact they don't like the current power structures or the power structures that they perceive to be dominant. Do you, do you disagree with me, or do I just misunderstand this, or not? I think I think there's different versions of the critique, so I don't think one needs to be as anti-capitalist as myself or Kevin Surprise to be worried that to have the sorts of I think it would be morale hazard concerns in your terminology to say 
we're just worried that this will slow the speed of the energy transition. But I think one okay. can have the, the stronger concern that it's it's cementing or, or postponing, making it easier for, for capitalist forms of production to to continue into the future. So okay. I think there's I think there's different different varieties of the concern. So, so you view this as you know you're not really you don't appear to be disagreeing with my core framing of the anti's argument, right? You seem to be saying that it's about the, you know I don't think there's any denial that the current global economic system is you know, predominantly liberal capitalist and it's predominantly based on fossil fuel. What I think you you were meaning is that the, your central concern is global capitalist system is based on fossil fuels and whether or not you have to replace capitalism to replace fossil fuels the central concern is that the current capitalist system is self-sustaining dominant intellectual and um uh, an economic economy is is sustaining a fossil fuel economy and it's using solid engineering as a part thereof as part of either a, a narrative or as a set of actions to delay or obstruct change is that is that how do I do I correctly understand the yeah I think I think that generally captures I mean one of one of my concerns again not okay. not one that is like central to this paper whatsoever like this okay so this paper in particular is just sort of setting up a framework for for having these discussions like I said I'm like new to these debates and and my my observation as I started reading them, literature on this was, and this is kind of circling us back, but that people are making assumptions that are about the future use of the technology, about the future actions of political actors that are either they're not accurate or they're not consistent. Okay. Can you give me examples of inaccuracies and inconsistencies that that concern you? Yeah, so I mean, start with the. I think I think the most interesting ones are the inconsistencies, but I'll just start with the the inaccurate complaint that I have. Uh, so I think I think not to pick on David Keith, but his one of his recent op eds on this topic does this. So he says something along the lines of, I think it was, "This was in the New York Times." He says, "Look." Eliminating emissions by 2050 is, I think he says, like difficult but achievable. And then he says, suppose we meet this goal. And he goes on to say, look, locked in impacts will continue to occur. Um, and solar geoengineering should be researched now so that it can potentially be used to abate some of those impacts. So, it's like a tool in the toolbox argument, right? Yeah. But what he's doing in that argument is taking on what I, I call a full compliance assumption. So he's he's saying, look, suppose we meet our our emissions goals to eliminate emissions by 2050, right? Suppose everyone moving forward gets their ass in gear and and acts as they ought to. And he's saying, look, we should we should research SAI even on that really really optimistic assumption about how people will act. And I'm kind of fine with that. That that seems plausible to me, but my complaint there is that I don't think it follows from the truth of the claim that SAI research is permissible or required, morally mandatory or something under those really optimistic, what I call full compliance assumptions. It doesn't follow from that fact that we should research 
or deploy solar geoengineering under what I call partial compliance, but you can just think about it in, in as like under much more pessimistic assumptions about how okay. the technology will be be used. So let, let me rephrase that. So what you're sure. saying is that David Keith is saying, even if society collectively, politics, pol- politicians specifically get their act together yeah. and provide a, a, what you might call a, a, a good, normatively good um, set of climate actions in coming decades, that argument doesn't consider the imperfect or non-ideal world, to use philosopher's terms, of a situation where people are not, you know, they're, they're bothered about all of the other things they might be bothered about, such as having wars and trying to kill each other rather than sorting the climate out. And to assume that everything's going to be done in this nicely considered fashion rather overlooks the real politic of the situation in which geoengineering might be deployed and therefore overlooks the complexity of the having the tool available to people who probably haven't done their homework and haven't run things as carefully and in as well organized a fashion as we might wish them to have done right yeah i think so and then that that sort of more basic observation which i think i think most people understand that they think we're not we're not like morally pristine human beings and the technology might not be used um like people people may use it wrongly but i think that observation sort of sets us up for the more interesting observations which is that on both sides of the aisle so both both proponents and critics of sai research they they make inconsistent assumptions about future action so they'll they'll and i can give you a couple examples but they'll you know at one stage of their argument take on these really pessimistic assumptions about how future political actors will act and then later on oftentimes when it when it serves that their argument or the point they're trying to make they will they will take on far more optimistic far more full compliance assumptions about about and is that how. a lack of and is that a lack of systematic thinking or yeah that's the complaint it's just a lack of consistency so you know the 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 like philosopher funny example i use in the paper is like you know suppose that your friend is always an hour late to everything and you you're kind of sly about it and you decide to tell your friend to arrive at lunch an hour before your reservation i I will not have you suggest that anyone's ever done that to me no never (laughs) no I've never been late for anything. Right. So maybe you're the late friend. But in this example, at least, uh, you then decide to arrive an hour early yourself, despite the fact that you have better, you know, better things to do, tweets to send out or whatever. So that's that's just an example where... I've always got important tweeting today. That's an example where, you know, in one moment, you're reasoning on the assumption that your friend's always an hour late. And then... And another moment, you're reasoning on the assumption that your friend will be on time. And I'm I'm sort of accusing both sides of the solar geo debate of making similar sorts of of inconsistencies in their arguments. So does it know. matter? I mean, does it matter like whether people behave perfectly or imperfectly in the part in the future? And what would we do differently today if we if people were projected to behave? perfectly or imperfectly i I have have to say that i can't can't recall any time in my work on the subject where i've ever given a lot of thought to whether people will be perfect in future i mean for a start i'm pretty sure they won't be but secondly i'm not sure how it would change the actions i make today whether i expect people to be perfect perfect tomorrow that's back to the the 
crystal ball example, right? Where it's like, I think we would, I mean, I think we would act very differently if we knew or were reasonably certain that researching some technology and having that available would result in people that people would use that technology wrongly, that there would be termination shock, moral hazard, so on and so forth. Okay, but do you think that's central? Do you think that the reason that people are scared or, or worried about or cautious about this technology is because they, you know, worried about equipping fools in the future, right? Or do you think that there are other other there are other aspects other than the imperfect moral or compromised political positions of the people in the future that driving that yeah. technology? That's a that's a good question. I feel like so some arguments don't depend as heavily on on I guess the first thing to say is I don't think all all arguments like bring these assumptions to the fore as much as they could. Sometimes sometimes it's sort of people's pessimism about how the technology will be used in the future isn't is is hidden in their argument. And then the other thing to say is I do think there's some arguments that just don't depend on how the technology will be used. So someone who thinks oh, you know, we should not research solar geo because it's messing with nature in a really and, yeah, and I, I just, an expression of hubris the, or something. Yeah, yeah, I just want to grab onto a couple of the sort of common objections that are given to solar engineering, and I'd like to understand about how your paper sure, yeah. addresses them. So get the idea that um, uh, there are certainly the, the kind of Sammy argument we shouldn't be messing with nature. Obviously, the counter argument to that as well, we're already wrestling with it right now, duh. So, you know, this yeah. just helps us mess with it a bit better. The other one is that the idea, you get the winners and losers argument, the idea that, you know, a certain certain sets of people will lose from solid engineering and, you know, completely irrational or unjustifiable to expect that people will try and deploy in a, in a reasonable and fair manner. We should only expect people to deploy in a disgracefully unfair manner and any yeah. tools that you, we give people that allow them to be more unfair than they're already being will only lead to them being even more unfair, which is a, a, you know, a very kind of negative view of human society. But nevertheless, it's an argument that are made. So I don't want to rehearse every single argument against your engineering that's ever been made because otherwise we'll be here for a while. <laughs> and, and you've got to yeah, do a yeah. paper if you want to do that. But what I'm saying Indeed. is like, what, what, does, what, what insight does your paper specifically give about these different ways that solid engineering can be criticised, and what does it tell us that's new about which ones are valid and which ones aren't valid, or which ones we can do more or less with? Yeah, so I think I think an example might help maybe on on both sides of the the debate. So just starting with critics of SAI, maybe. So critics of S of Solar Geo, I have in mind people who have signed the non-use agreement. Yeah, Frank uh, Beerman's lot, right? Yeah, so they'll often say these two things. They'll say, one, something like, it's still possible to avoid the worst impacts of climate change by eliminating emissions by mid-century. So they have this really optimistic view of like what's possible. And then on the other hand, they'll often say, but... SAI research should not be developed because if it is, it will be used to delay the energy transition. So just just an example of that. I'm trying to. But pull isn't up that largely article. the argument that you you yourself are following, or do I misunderstand your science? No, right. So what I'm saying is, look, what what and and let me just give you the the exact text and then tell you where I think the critics go wrong here. So 
in the argument for an international non-use agreement, they, and this is in the same paragraph, they say, look, decarbonization of our economies is feasible if the right steps are taken, leading also to innovation opportunities through economic transformation, et cetera, et cetera. And then just a few sentences down, they say the current world order seems unfit to reach such far-reaching agreements on fair and effective political control over solar geoengineering deployment. First, well, the paradox I'm sensing there is that yeah. why would you assume that a world was in, was capable of mitigating if it was simultaneously incapable of doing solar geoengineering? Right. It, yeah, you know, so that's my point. both competence exactly and incompetence at the same time, right? Yes, exactly. So that is, in my mind, an example of this inconsistency in reasoning, where on the one hand, you're making this really optimistic assumption about how the energy transition, the possibility of of full decarbonization by 2050 or whatever. And then on the other hand, you're, you're taking on a really pessimistic assumption about the ability of the current world order to reach some sort of, you know, minimally just agreement about fair and effective control over solar geo. Yeah, yeah. Back, right? So I'm not Frank Beerman. I don't necessarily agree with what he's got to say from what I've seen of his work. But if I was to sort of imagine what I think he might say, if we get him on the podcast, sure. he probably would say that solar geoengineering is a kind of uniquely or among a set of uniquely dangerous technologies where it's inherently corrupting. It's like the crack cocaine of technologies. It creates a set of power which is so dangerous in that it actually actively undermines the ability mm-hmm. for people to work together and to reach sensible political consensus. And what we have is a, a much slower and less unstable form of technology in terms of mitigation um, where, where it brings out the best in people. And it's the technology itself that harms our ability to reach agreement to work in a collectivist and collaborative fashion. Is that argument yeah. invalid or do I misunderstand it or what? No, I think I think that's probably precisely how he would respond. And I think my point in the paper is just to say, look, you know, another another way of putting that response is that he's well, I, I'm saying, look, you're making these different assumptions about how political actors will act moving forward. You're you're optimistic on the one hand and you're pessimistic on the other hand. And all I'm pushing for in the paper is is to say, look, if you're going to make inconsistent assumptions like that, you need to you need to justify them. You need to say, why am I being pessimistic here and optimistic well, over I just, here? I just did, right? I mean, did I right. Just and I guess that? my, yeah, and I think that's what he would say is, look, I am justified. And I guess my response there is that I think, I think that the jury is still out. So, so he, he seems no, I, to think, look, it's, it's like very obvious that we, that we can make more like these inconsistent assumptions. And I, I just, I don't think it's, obvious yet that that's true so i think it it might be true that sai is used to slow down the energy transition relative to its currently slow pace or you know someone might make the argument that it could be used to speak christine Merck has done work on this for example yeah. in terms of she's people's ordinary citizens attitudes mm-hmm. to srm and they they seem to be more focused on mitigation when srm is wielded over their head like sort of Damocles, right? They, they yeah. get a bit more fussed about mitigation when they realise how serious the climate crisis Yeah, I mean, I'm suspicious maybe of the like individual level of that analysis, but the, the point is just to say, look, if you're going to make these inconsistent assumptions, you need to justify them. Uh, 
And, you know, some people do a better or worse job of doing that. It's not a, it's not yet in the paper, at least an assessment of the justification. But is it not, am I not right in making a sensible point that Frank would make in that the, mm-hmm. the central point is that SRM is, is a, because of this free driver effect, because it's fast acting, because it's so cheap, that it is a uniquely corrupting technology actively militates against sensible collaborative decision making now i'm not that's not my point but i i'm just saying what i think other people argue about geo engineering that srm is something which um which is uh, it, it's, it's it's politically dangerous as a technology because it's too powerful and it's too uncooperative and therefore it makes people behave badly and that's why you can argue simultaneously that people will behave well with mitigation and badly with SRM. It, I mean, even though I don't agree with the argument, it seems to be pretty logical and pretty consistent. Do I do I just misunderstand the situation? No, no. I mean, I think you're you're doing what the paper is pressing people to do, which is to if you're going to make these inconsistent assumptions, if you're going to say with solar geo, people will act worse than they otherwise would then you need to tell some story about about why that is the case and well i you just know, the, did the story I mean, the, free, right. the unilateralist nature of solar geoengineering is fast it's cheap and it doesn't require agreement and you know anyone anyone can do it in principle now the my, my sort of the argument has flowed through most of my work over the last decade or so is that just because that is true it doesn't mean that people don't operate in a larger game theoretic environment where they have more aspects to consider in what they're doing. You can't just assume that because a single aspect of political decision-making works in this way that you don't have to consider anything else when you're making those decisions because people are used to having a 100 things to worry about, not just one, right? And Mm -hmm. most of the work people do on SRM you know, they're imagining a world in which it's, you know, literally a kind of game theoretic world where it's the only thing that exists. They're not even considering that there are a variety of different um, games going on that could include everything from war to trade and personal politics and everything in between, right? So mm-hmm. that, that doesn't seem to me to be um, that the simplification that I invoked to make the point that I made earlier about the corrupting nature of technology to me, doesn't seem to fully encompass the reality of the situation because there's a lot of opportunities to control the behaviour of people or countries who have access to powerful technologies because there's always other levers you can pull. So that 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 would seem to, to um, uh, constrain the bit of an argument, but I still don't think it's silly. I still think that you can make a sensible argument that solar engineering technology is corrupting. So what what else, what other insights? I mean, you you might want to apply that logical framework to other challenges within the field, or you might have other logical frameworks that you want to bring to bear from the paper. I just want to better understand what we can learn from you and the work you do, right? Yeah, of course. Yeah. So, I mean, I think just going through the, an example where the proponents of SAI exhibit a similar inconsistency. And then, I mean, I think the the interesting and it's, it's less developed, but I think it's important part of the paper is where, so, I mean, the, the, the start of it is saying, look, 
we should make accurate and consistent assumptions about future action. People aren't, both parties to the debate, I think, in many cases are failing to do this. But then the natural next question is, okay, what what sort of assumptions should we make, right? What does accuracy actually amount to in this space? So for the people who, who haven't been concentrating, such as myself, <laughs> give, me, give me an example of, of how both the pro and anti-factions in this debate are making the same sort of category error. So right. you've so, given this example for Beerman, where yeah. you know, he's saying that solar geoengineering is an uncontrollable technology, but people are going to um, act in a collaborative handholding and generally lovey-dovey fashion about mitigation, despite all evidence to the contrary over the last 30 years. And you, mm-hmm. you're, you're saying that that's a, a kind of logical error. So where are the kind of Keithian, <laughs> if that isn't the word, it needs to be. So <laughs> the Keithians getting wrong. Sure, yeah. I mean, I think, so they, like like you say, they make what I understand to be a, a similar air inconsistency. So, I mean, this is this is obviously a bit of a caricature of, of one of the pro-solar geo arguments, but, but they'll oftentimes say something along these lines. They'll say, look, global mitigation efforts are going to likely continue to be very insufficient. We won't be able to eliminate emissions by mid-century. So... Solar Geo is motivated by this, this is sort a of plan B argument, right? Yeah. So this this partial partial compliance, this pessimism about how the energy transition will unfold. And then they go on to say, rightly so, the consequences of this insufficient mitigation will be drastic, especially for the From what I understand, you're directly reversing the argument. You're basically saying that each side falls into the same trap that yeah. they on the one hand say that they're technology they don't like is hard to govern and the technology they do like is easy to govern precisely right so just to finish out the argument the the proponents of sai say you know if we're going to have any hope of avoiding these horrific consequences for the global poor we need to devote significant resources to researching solar geoengineering now and then oftentimes they will discount the extent to which Solar geo would be used to further delay the energy transition um, or or other malevolent uses. Let me circle back to the central point because I, I think that's that's really interesting what you said. And I, the, the problem is that we often get a lot of kind of semi tribalistic rehashing of <laughs> positions um, yeah. where everyone, everyone's basically doing the equivalent, uh, the academic equivalent of a hacker, and they just stand and shout at the other side with no intention. Right, of right. I'm sure you've got to say to make that slightly no, I get it. I understand. And what what you're doing is what you're doing is is interesting because I think what you're if, if I could pray what you've told me so far, and maybe there's lots of other stuff in the paper that we've yet to get onto, but if I could pray what you've told me so far is, is that you believe that there's a, a central issue in this debate and perhaps many others as well, where the proponents of a particular viewpoint view their preferred solution as being benign governance benign and their opposed solution as being governance hazardous basically and you're saying that these assumptions are often either unstated or flat out wrong yeah unstated unsupported or flat out wrong so people might people just to just to break that down because i I think it's important to draw the distinction so people might hold the assumption without ever mentioning it so it's it's underpinning their reasoning but they never say that it's underpinning their reasoning they might Mm -hmm. say that it's 
they might be explicit and say, well, we think so geoengineering is hard to govern, but never explain why. Or they might give a bunch of reasoning that explains why, but that reasoning is just erroneous, right? And for all those reasons, you still get you get to the same point that you're you're invoking governance challenges, but yet at the same time relying on similarly weakly justified governance benefits on with, with your your favorite technology. Right. So, yeah, precisely. So, we, so it's, the, okay. it's the inconsistency that I'm trying to draw okay. out. Without yet saying, well, that, you know, what what sort of assumptions we we should take on or how difficult governing the energy transition or solar geo would be. I'm not I'm not yet taking a stand on anything like that. I'm just saying, look, both sides, both parties to the debate are are exhibiting this this inconsistency. Okay. Well, out of the two of them, out of the two sides, you know, your your Keithians or your Surprisians mm. or Beermanists or whatever factions you want to draw, <laughs> right? Yep. Uh, Beermanists, I think I might start using that. Beermanists and Keithians. I hope that ling- lingo catches on in this debate because it's sufficiently silly to be entertaining, but sufficiently informative <laughs> to be useful. So so how how do we work out whether it's the Keithians or the Beermanists that are right. I mean, they might, you know, one of them might be right in their assumptions, and one of them might be wrong. I mean, I, I've explained earlier how I think the the Beermanists could be right because solar geoengineering does sound like it's quite a hard technology to govern. It's quite, you know, it's quite inherently unstable in my view. My my argument against the Beermanists is that the there's not only one game on the table you're playing several games at once and therefore mm-hmm. you can't cheat at one game and expect to win at another right mm-hmm. so um you know can, can you personally shed any light on whether um, the beermanists or the keithians are correct yeah i mean i think that sets up sort of la- latter part of the paper well so the the question you're asking basically is you know i'm i'm making this accusation people are being pessimistic when it comes to the technology they don't like and optimistic when it comes to what they do like. And then maybe a way of rephrasing the question you're asking is like, okay, should we be pessimistic or optimistic or, or the way I put it in the paper? I mean, what what I'm trying to, I'm trying to do in a more divisive and uh, generally trouble stirring fashion. What I'm trying to do (laughs) is to say, you know, can, can we be confident that one or other parties in this debate is just flat out wrong? I mean, at the end of the day, it comes down to there are there are there are there's a two possible uh, situ- situations that can exist. So either um, climate mitigation is easier to obtain than is assumed by the Keithians, or solar geoengineering is easier to govern than the Beermanists say. I mean, like the, those are the pretty much the the only two possibilities in the bay. I mean, if you're, if you're, I'm not saying that those are the only two things you've got to worry about in solar engineering, but, but, yeah. but that's what it boils down to, right? So, you know, one side is probably right in this debate, right? I think I'm, I'm less inclined to take a side than to say, okay, I think, I think, and maybe this will end up in me taking a side, but I think generally, well, I'm, not saying, that hold on. I'm not saying that you have to take a side, but what I'm saying is that there has to be a way of determining which side is right. You don't have to call that judgment. It might be for others to make that judgment, but there must be a way of determining who is right. Right. So what I, what I want to do is say, okay, I think we need to generally take on board consistently a sort of pessimism about 
both things. So I think both pessimism, what I call non-compliance, about how the energy transition will unfold, but also pessimism consistently, right? Also pessimism or non-compliance about how solar geoengineering will be governed and used. Yeah, I understand your point. So what you're basically saying is they're both crap at arguing. They're both not setting out a proper set of assumptions and then justifying logically how they get from their assumptions to the conclusions, which is you know just basic deductive reasoning, right? I'm not saying you're not arguing for a logical framework to be applied by both of those parties. That much is obvious. What I'm trying to say is either can we, as as of this moment, start to understand which side is most affected by that emission? They might both be making it, but one is one side is inevitably going to be they can't both be exactly equally wrong one has to be more wrong than the other right and what i'm trying to understand is based on what we know at the moment are people being unduly pessimistic about our ability as a society to govern solid geoengineering um or are they being unduly pessimistic about the the ability to do mitigation Right. So I think I would say I would say neither. I I think pessimism is warranted in both on both sides. And that, yeah, that's no, why it's I, hard I get it. I understand whether I understand that you're picking the same fault on both sides. I, I get that. But what yeah. I'm saying is that they cannot both be like unless you're assuming that there's only kind of three degrees of error, you can either be completely right, completely wrong, or exactly in the middle. You know, any more any more degrees of wrongness than that it's very likely that they're not going to be the same level of wrongness. And my suggestion is more like there's a thousand degrees of wrongness. I see, I see. So so what I'm saying is like, who's more wrong? Are the Keithians more wrong than the Beerminists or or, or vice versa? I see. So should we be more worried about the prospects of a a slow energy transition or more worried about the prospects of of solar solar geo being governed poorly is what is what you're asking i mean that that's a way of boiling down the argument now there there are other ways that you can phrase fundamentally the same set of concerns but what i'm trying to say is that you've obviously looked at how people are failing to think about this in a logical and consistent fashion and Mm -hmm. it and it must become obvious that so there's there's two there's two possibilities so either both both people so one is more sloppy in their reasoning or Alternatively, the consequent consequences of that sloppiness are more damaging to one side's arguments or the other. Okay, what I'm trying mm. to draw you on is, is it, it, to some extent, both of those things are important. But what's most important fundamentally is who's the wrongest in this <laughs> argument using your framework. I'm not saying that you know other people might not come up with equally valid framework, but looking at the way that you're analysing weak reasoning and uh, just invoking hope as a strategy, who is more prone to doing this? Yeah, that's a good, that's a good question. I mean... It boils down. I mean, am I, am I not boiling down your paper to the key question? I mean, it feels like I am boiling down what you've got to say to the key question. You're, you're taking two, you know, kind of obviously opposed schools of thought, even though, you know, they're very, very loose schools of thought because... A lot of people who agree with David Keith don't work directly with him, right? And a lot of people who agree with Frank Beerman don't work directly with him. And I'm boiling down a complex field to a simple question. What I'm trying to do is get to the, you know, the simple nub of how your paper can be applied in order to better inform the debate. And it seems to me that based on the reasoning that you've given, that that is 
the boil down. That's where we get to when we think about these things. Am I do I misunderstand or not? No, I think it's close. I think I'm maybe struggling with the like more or less wrong. Like I think the the way I understand the central well, I know point you want to is fence it, but <laughs> the way I understand the the central point is like okay, they're they're both exhibiting this this inconsistency, so their their arguments should be thrown out on that basis. But I want to salvage a little bit from each in the sense of I want to take on board. And and in the, the paper, what I call it non-compliance of the powerful. So I say, we've seen this inconsistency in people's reasoning. And the natural next question is, okay, we need to reframe the debate. What assumptions should we be making about how both the energy transition and governance of solar geoengineering will unfold moving forward, understanding that we, we are inevitably making assumptions about how how both those things will unfold when we argue about these things. And I, what I, I want to press in the direction of is saying, and this I haven't I haven't totally stated clearly thus far, and you might you might like to argue against it, so I'll I'll state it. Is that the assumption that we should be taking on board is that powerful political actors will continue to act to advance what they take to be their own interests. So the thought is we should apply that assumption to both the speed of the energy transition and governance of solar geoengineering. Well, I get it. I understand. And I'm not disputing. And I think that yeah. what you suggested is you've boiled down the debate to a very important bit of lazy reasoning. And I, I love this kind of stuff because when you kind of, <laughs> once you spot it, you see it again and again and again, right? Yeah, it's, it's not It's not just in solar geo, certainly. Well, exactly. Yeah. But what I'm making is that when when I read something, I can then refer back to your arguments and think about how what you've done educates me about how to interpret a particular paper. But at the mm-hmm. end of the day, in this debate, you, you, you've got quite an objectivist stance here, right? You're 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 being quite objective about what constitutes being right or wrong in this debate, right? Mm-hmm. And to be usefully applied. It's all very well to say, hey, don't make this kind of error, but that's just, it's a bit motherhood and apple pie, isn't it, really? You're not, you're not saying this person is making this error to this degree and therefore needs to course correct. And what I'm saying is that your arguments are interesting and valid, but they leave me, they leave me unsatisfied in that they don't seem to, to give the clarity of damning that I want. I, what, I, what I want <laughs> from, from this is for right. you to be able to say, you are the wrongest and here's why. And here's why you need to go to the corner of shame and redo your homework. And I'm just <laughs> not getting that clarity from you. Yeah, I'm not I'm not sure that I want to give you that clarity because it is, it is a it? little bit do, of... <laughs> I mean, it's, do you have it? Well, it's, well, I, I feel very teased here. I feel well, like you know, know more, you know more than you're telling me. And I'd like yeah. to know who you think is the wrongest. And I, I fear that you're fencing so as not to get drawn and have your the value of your paper dis- detracted from by right, being right. seen as being a tool of tribalism. And that's where I, I fear you're at. But I think, <laughs> no, I think you know in your heart where which of the two sides you think is most egregiously wrong. Yeah, I mean, I guess the first thing I'd say is Probably as a teaser for my uh, my broader dissertation, so maybe you'll have to have me have me on in a few years. 
that's quite well, a long I mean, time to wait to find out who's right today. It's like watching the football and not being shown the final score. Very yeah, frustrating. Fair, fair enough, fair enough. If I'm not going to draw you on who's right and who's wrong, could I at least draw you on where you think the opportunities to better reason are as far as both of these parties go? Because there must be particular areas of error even if you're not going to tot it up and come to a final conclusion about Mm -hmm. who is wrongest and who is rightest there must be you know some degree of precision that you can give us in terms of um uh where these these arguments are being most um where, where there's the most egregious oversight within these these camps even if you're not prepared to tell us which you think is most sinful you right. perhaps are willing to give us more clarity on uh, who uh, on on the areas in in which people can better best improve their reasoning, or how they can apply more quantification to what they're doing than you seem to think they have applied so far. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the the big area for progress is, t- and this this is not just the job of philosophers or climate scientists, but also. I think like social scientists and political scientists is to try and put more meat on the bones of our assumptions about how the technology will be used in the future. So I suggest this sort of non-ideal framing where I say across the board, we should be really pessimistic about people acting as they ought to essentially. Um, and, And we should take that seriously both when it comes to the energy transition and solar geo but there's obviously a lot to, to flesh out there. But your, but your key point isn't about the need for cynicism. It's about the need for consistency, right? And it's so it's a it, that's that's where the paper, I think, has two parts, right? The first part is, hey, we need to be consistent in the assumptions that we make. And then the second part says, oh, well, what assumptions should we make? You know, what 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 does an accurate and what what kind of assumptions should we apply consistently? in okay. all stages well, of our reasoning. And then that's where I say, I think we should consistently be really pessimistic. And then that's the that's okay. the part where I think- I mean, uh, okay, that's a bit be, dark, really. I mean- It is It is a bit, bit dark. I mean, I think that's why like I- I mean, not, I not everything is rubbish, is it? I mean, you know, <laughs> you know, you don't walk out of your house and get stabbed and shot most days and you turn the lights on and they work. You know, there's, there's decision-making and committees and people behind them. And, things kind of come together. So are you not just being a bit of a misery gut? I think I might be being a bit of a misery gut. I mean, to sort of, you know, take a take an initial stance, like I certainly have a lot of skepticism about the future use of solar geo, you know, along the Kevin surprise lines. But I think the reason I have a hard time saying, you know, who's the rightest or who's the wrongest is because I also am deeply pessimistic about the prospects of an energy transition that's that's at anywhere close to the speed that's required. Well, I mean, look at it rationally. I mean, functionally, all of the new power and generating capacity that's being installed in the modern world is now renewables, right? So, uh, but that's just adding on top of existing. I mean, well, act- is, but, actual well, CO2 yeah. emissions are not declining. We're just increasing total well, hold, energy capacity. Hold on, yeah, but the point is that that the the most of fossil stuff is basically legacy. This does this; these assets don't have an infinite life, right? And so, right. once you start, once you start replacing the, your marginal generation with with low carbon assets, it's only a matter of time before all of your old stuff 
falls up falls off the grid right so you know we we've stopped building predominantly we stopped building new coal sort capacity <laughs> right yeah now uh, coal doesn't have an infinite life i mean it has it has a decadal life it's not going to disappear on thursday but it but it doesn't but it doesn't last forever and the point i'm making is that we have to consider the fact that these technologies um you know are working to to replace legacy technology so you know solar is replacing coal in in a steady way now I'm, yeah, I'm I mean, to I would say, say we've, got, we've got the problem licked, but yeah. you have to be rational about it. You know, there, there is an energy transition. Yeah, I mean, I, it's happening. I just think it's happening far too slowly, and the bulk of the bulk of renewable energy is is just adding on top of and not at this stage replacing. Well, I mean, yeah, it is. But as I explained, that that's not the state of affairs. Yeah, yeah, but even if you look at like, there's still you know upwards of three, four thousand coal plants currently in operation and and those would need to we need to pretty much immediately close every single one of those in order to not blast through 1.5 or 2 degrees so i mean i but if you I guess, if you look at the work of john shepherd for example his famous napkin diagram he's he's one of the people who i think was, was perhaps first and foremost in terms of creating nuance in this field in that um what he's basically said is that there isn't a solution. There's a group of solutions that we have to consider in toto because they all work together, right? And with a future, it's likely to include all three of mitigation, solar geoengineering and adaptation. And there'll be a bit of un unaddressed suffering on top as well. And that seems to me to be an appropriate degree of nuance rather than saying, well, the energy transition is going to work or the energy transition is not going to work. We just need to be a bit more sensible and nuanced about these things rather than trying to create a false dichotomy. It almost seems like, you know, deliberately stirring trouble to try and distill the world down into one single truth when, in fact, it's more messy and complicated than that, isn't it, really? I mean, there isn't. In most situations, there isn't one single solution or one single. I mean, obviously, things like, you know, vaccinating smallpox gets rid of smallpox, but most human problems don't come down to that kind of thing, do they? They almost invariably human problems come down to uh, messy and inexact and imperfect solutions, and and therefore we don't necessarily need to to differentiate between you know the optimal and suboptimal approaches because everything's suboptimal, right? There's no, yeah. we, we, there are there are so few solutions which have perfect uh, problems that have perfect solutions that it's almost not worth talking about because they're so vanishingly rare and exceptional that it just isn't worth the bother. Yeah, I don't think I disagree with all. I mean, I I, I don't necessarily... I think the, the napkin diagram itself has some room for nuance because if you take if you take the, the sort of non-ideal pessimistic assumptions that I'm pushing seriously, you would see more interaction between solar geo and a further slowing of the of the energy transition and how, um, how would that which interaction occur which isn't reflected in the napkin diagram i mean i think there's mo there's multiple mechanisms and i know like you'll say this isn't happening yet but i i do have concerns about the way that the fossil fuel industry might employ the narrative around SAI to further slow the energy transition. Like I think we and just we to be clear, are you is this something that's in the paper? Or is this just your unrelated ramblings that you think <laughs> we might be interested in? I think it's it's in the paper in the very end. So so the okay. sort of closing of the paper is 
is I defend this assumption that I call the non-compliance of the powerful assumption where I say we should, this is the assumption we should be reasoning on, this sort of pessimistic assumption that powerful political actors will continue to act to advance their own interests. And then the the closing of the paper. Well, how would we know if that was true and not true? I mean, like people have been saying for a decade that fossil fuel interests are going to like solar geoengineering, but there's just no money going into the field. And the one thing that the fossil fuel industry is not sure of is cash, right? You know, people want to send me a load of money, then they're welcome to try and do so. <laughs> but no one has done yet. So I'm assuming that fossil interests aren't terribly interested in funding me and by extension, a lot of other people in this field. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's a good point. I just, I guess I think that if you're taking that assumption seriously, and you might be led to believe, look, like, if if the fossil fuel industry is continuing to advance its own interests, this is something that it could very well in the future. And maybe it's not just the fossil fuel industry, like, I think, you know, make make sense out such but, 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 that. But rise to the challenge. If I if, if I can insist on, on asking you to rise to the challenge, like, sure, sure. So many people say that, and I don't yeah. see a shred of evidence of it being true. You know, I'm not trying to be tribalist about this. I just don't see the evidence. Where if if we spent ten years or more saying the fossil industry is going to fund solar geoengineering, where's the money? It's it's almost like to me to me this argument, right? You know, yeah. you know, you get occasionally deniers will come and say, hey, you know, all you climate scientists, you're taking back payments from the green lobby, whoever this green lobby is supposed to be, you know, you're all getting rich on this. And obviously it's total claptrap. There's no evidence for that at all. You know, a lot of people do it for, you know, no money or they take careers that are vastly less well paid than they would have if they did, you know, other kinds of work. But the point I'm making is that why why should we give any credence at all to this idea that the oil companies are going to come along and fund solar geoengineering when people have been shouting about it for 10 years? It's not like, the oil companies don't ever read science, right? You know, they're going to be aware that people are making this argument. And if it genuinely was in their interest, then surely someone would have gone, you know what? All these people are banging on about what a good idea it would be for us to come and fund solar geoengineering. How about we fund some solar geoengineering? But it just doesn't happen. So why do people keep saying it and expecting everyone to believe that it's a real thing when it's obviously not a real thing? Yeah, I mean, I think I think I'd say two things. The first is like I I do think there's maybe more than there there are some shreds of evidence that there's talk. So I mean, maybe this is more like in some of the stuff that people have said about um I forget the the terrible quotes about solar geo being a technical solution to a technical problem kind of thing by fossil fuel funded politicians. So there's there's maybe more to look for, you know, and in, in the same way as as it's only now just coming out in the past five or so years, how much deception was going on when it comes to just the realities of climate change and how no, much... I, I get it. I'm not trying right. to defend the fossil fuel industry. And no, I'm, no, no, I don't think you are. I'm just saying well, I think we should what are you look referring to? I think it's important to... It's important to spell it out. What you're referring to is the whole kind of Exxon New movement. And yeah. I've covered this on geoengineering on Twitter, and it's been covered extensively in the mainstream media as well. The face of the Exxon had really, really good climate scientists in the 1970s. The climate scientists basically said, if you keep burning fossil fuels, you're going to screw the planet. And they were like, yeah, that's great. Have your money. Now go away. And then spent the following 20 years trying to deny all of the science that they've done and all of the same science that is being done by other people that came to the same conclusions and funding all kinds of nasty little denier think tanks in America predominantly, but also with global influence. And, you know, they, they would take 
somebody quite with quite a brass neck to deny that's happening, right? Yeah, you know the, the, so, the whole Exxon yeah. new thing. So it's it's getting towards a point where it's just established historical record. There's no debate about it anymore. Okay, there, there has been a huge effort by the fossil fuel industries to foster denial about the about the realities of climate change. But the point I'm making is that people have been making exactly the same arguments about solar geoengineering, but there is no evidence that money has been coming in apart from you know. Certainly not in bulk. You know, there's been odd bits of money coming into specific projects, but most of that has been just general, you know, tech bro type money as opposed to fossil money. And I think from what I understand, even people who are the most gung ho type academics in this space are not generally willing to take fossil money. So how many years do we have to put up with this argument being mm -hmm. made that solid engineering is a product? of the fossil industry without anybody coming up with any evidence that it is. It, it's a bit like the moral hazard argument that people keep saying, oh, you know, people are going to, uh, if the existence of solar geoengineering is going to stop people mitigating. You know, that may be true, but, you know, eventually we have to say at some point, you've had 10 years to come up with the evidence. Can you please now sit down and shut up? Because there just isn't any evidence. Um, you know, Christine Merck, who I mentioned earlier, has done quite a lot of work on this. Many other people uh, I think there's. I think Jesse Reynolds did an uh, assessment of the science in this space and found that the ratio was like 14 to one in terms of papers that provided empirical evidence to um, uh, to oppose the concept of moral hazard um, as is traditionally espoused in this space, and only one paper was supportive in terms of empirical evidence. So, it just seems that we've got this trope. And just to you know, blow more smoke regarding Jesse, he came up with a paper about tropes that need to die. I think he wrote that with Andy Parker, if I'm not mistaken, but I yeah, can't I be sure. So. And uh, one, one of the tropes was um, about this kind of moral hazard problem, I think, and then, or it may be an un unrelated trope to that paper, but it's certainly a trope. And and to me, the, the fossil fuel industry thing is a trope in its own right. You know, people bang on about the fossil fuel industry's influence and desire for this technology but never seem to come up with any evidence that it's happening so you know at what point are we just legitimately able to say please don't make the argument again because we've just heard enough of it yeah no i mean i think just like to answer to answer directly i think like not yet because the technology is new the debates over this technology are, are new and like the narratives well, why, are, why, are still not yet? being solidified because why, i think the there's plenty of time for i mean you know there's plenty of time for the a new narrative around this to to be formed. And just to say something about the moral hazard thought, I think that we're already seeing moments where people are talking about solar geoengineering as a way to slow the energy transition in a in a like desirable sense. So if you look well, at some of the I heard those arguments from the American extreme right about ten years ago. Um, no, not extreme right. I think if you look at if you look at some of the integrated assessment modeling going on, solar geoengineering, when it's being integrated into those, is the the outcome is slower mitigation. So well, and that's just that's just math. I mean, like because it's cheap, the model will always solve the more solar geoengineering. And in fact, I I know that David Keith has done work on that and they have to deliberately kind of break the model to stop it just spitting outside of geoengineering all the time right so right I, I, but that's just model land isn't it that's not reality it doesn't it might, doesn't it might not be reality the nuances of policy a lot of policy making relies pretty heavily on 
outcomes of complex integrated assessment modeling. And I mean, I know they always caveat like this is not this is not policy advice. This is this is the model. But you know, you look at you look at the IPCC. You look at a lot of policymaking, and and it's it's based on some of the outputs of integrated assessment stuff. So I mean, I can just see. Yeah, I think I think your arguments much more applicable in carbon dioxide because there's a much more obvious application yeah. of of that into BECs where people have used BECs. I mean, for most of my time in this field, I kind of assumed that people were just using BECs as BECs, but I've now come to realise that when people say BECs, they're actually meaning stuff, which might include BECs. BECs is like a kind of proxy for CDR rather than being really CDR, which are, you know, a nuance that's probably been lost on me, to be honest, but yeah, here we are. Um, <laughs> so... But the end result of that is that we've got uh, debates internationally where overshoot is kind of baked in. Now, my own personal, the arguments I personally made on this is to say, well, none of this matters. It's all angels and pinhead stuff. As Margaret Thatcher said, you can't buck the market. Just to give a bit more detail on this, because I think it's an interesting line of argument. I don't hear many people making it, so I'm going to make it, right? I'm not saying it's bomb-proof, but I haven't heard people convince me that this is wrong. My my view is if you if you plot a log log plot of um, solar prices since 1974, they've been not quite straight line, but broadly straight line, right? And the end result of that is that you can view solar prices as being pretty much invariant, no matter how much policy wailing and gnashing of teeth is done, they just don't really change off that log log plot of the de- of decline. It's like a kind of Moore's law type decline and it's been held consistently since people started developing them for satellites in 1974 and my my view is that the energy transition has come about because of that and is its pace and nature is determined by the falling price of renewables which appear to have been falling largely regardless of the policy environment in which they've been operating they just seem to have been falling almost like it's a law of nature right and the the politicians People say, oh, politicians aren't working hard enough or fast enough on climate change. But my broad my broad view, you know, per Thatcher's comment on this, is that politicians are essentially impotent. It's like King Knut trying to hold back the waves, right? So the 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 argument that I've I've not found people able to persuade me that this is incorrect, right? That it's not necessarily that politicians are procrastinating in terms of dealing with climate change, is that politicians are just simply powerless in terms of dealing with climate change. What they're trying to do is to address a situation which arises out of fundamental economics and actually has very little to do with political authority. And they can turn up to all of the cops they like, but at the end of the day, if gasoline is cheaper than solar power, then the people will use gas. And if gasoline is more expensive than solar power, people will use solar. And yeah, they can shout and fight and argue at the margins, but it doesn't make a lot of difference, if I'm honest. That's my... I'm not saying that that's my settled view because I try not to have too many views that are too settled. And if I do, I <laughs> don't espouse them in public because people shout at me for having to do my own thinking and not accepting their political and uh, personal and economic biases, which they view as being the only correct ones, such as the sad state of academia. But that's that does happen. I do get a lot of personal abuse for having my own thoughts. So I try not to have any. I raise arguments, but I don't have my own opinions. But... People generally haven't been able to persuade me that what I've just told you is a terrible idea. So, you know, is what we're really seeing 
an effect where it's just a commentary on the powerlessness of politicians? Or am I being overly cynical about cynicism? Should uh-huh. I be more cautious about political power than I am? Right. I, I feel like I couldn't, the, the sort of central point you're trying to make there, is it like an optimism that the market the will take this, or is it just the a cent- pessimism about the, the power? The, cent- the central point I'm making is that it's pointless to put to lay climate change at the feet of politicians because it's primarily a product of an economic state of affairs, which is transient in world history. And it doesn't matter whether politicians say that they're going to overshoot or undershoot or you know do a little merry jig in the car park. What what's governing this entire space is the cost of renewable energy versus the cost of fossil fuels, and and when the renewable energy costs drop as they are doing at the moment, then the renewable energy economy will take over, and we don't need to worry too much about the good faith or commitment of politicians to solve this argument because it's just simply not what is driving the debate forward. That's my central point. Do you, do you do you not think that that is a a reasonable way of framing this debate and 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 that lays the groundwork for both SRM and CDR. So there is no in my in, in, in the model I'm advocating, there is no moral hazard problem because there is no authority. Hmm. I mean, I guess I would the first question I would ask is like, you know, what is what is making the cost of renewable energy fall as as quickly as they are? And then well, I would also re- it because like, it solves a marginal problem, right? In the same way that computers were originally used for calculating payroll for large companies, and then they ended up in your in you know, Apple smartwatch, right? Then you know, similarly, by solving one problem with a technology, it makes another problem cheaper to solve, and you know, thus the technology just cascades down the use cases. Yeah, I I would also caution against. I mean, even if that's true, which I'm I'm not totally inclined to agree with, but I would caution against the like this this energy transition that you're optimistic about happening as fast as we need it to like maybe maybe well i don't think it will happen as fast as we need it to i'm just right. to be clear my argument is entirely you know that point is entirely it's underrated. just like that it will happen i'm saying it's saying oh we don't need to be worried yes well, over not, a longer I'm term not, time scale no the two the two points i'm trying to make here are firstly it's inevitable right and second, the energy transition, the, meaning the energy transition is inevitable. And, yeah. and the second point is, you know, I understand the politicians could transform the tax system so that we paid enormous taxes on energy and reduced income taxes. But as no country in the world has done that to that extent, it's unlikely that the, that the tax system will be modified to the scale that it will would need to be modified. I mean, Britain's already got quite high gas taxes, and we don't all, you know, ride around on bicycles, right? So if if that was the case, if we could do if we could change society with the tax system, then more countries would be transforming their tax systems and more and the tax systems that have been changed would make more difference. But people are still happy to pay a large amount of their income to the privilege of driving a car in the UK, right? So my point is given the the legislative space that politicians can move in, it's not infinite, eventually they get hung from the canopy of a petrol station like Mussolini right yeah fair um, enough yeah and you know it doesn't matter you can be a thoroughly obnoxious autocrat and there is still a limit to your power because eventually your populace can just get rid of you if they want to. there's never there's never a political system that is entirely immune to the opinions of its citizens right and so there is a limit to the political space that politicians operate within and given that fact 
there's only a limited amount of control politicians can exert on the on the price of gas or the you know standard of insulation in people's homes or whatever. Given that and the energy transition economic inevitability, that politicians are you know far less important than they're seen as being in this debate. And I'm not saying that they are entirely unimportant, but I think that where I am pretty confident is that the the degree to which the solutions to our problems from a climate point of view are in the hands of our politicians is, is and has always been grossly, grossly exaggerated. I view yeah, it as fundamentally I mean, an economic transition and not as a political transition. Yeah, I think there's like most of that I agree with and then some sharp, sharp points of disagreement. I guess I, I'm in agreement that in our current economic political system, politicians don't have that much power for some of the reasons you mentioned. I'm also in agreement that maybe at this point, the energy transition will just sort of happen for the and using the economic mechanisms you mentioned, I think it will happen far too slowly, which you seem to agree with. I think the the maybe, and this is, I don't know, either a can of worms or a good thing to to close on is that I think I would just add that part of the inability of politicians to act in act in ways that would speed up the energy transition is due to powerful fossil fuel interests and and capital more broadly threatening to disinvest and and move out of their state or or jurisdiction or whatever it is yeah no i don't get me wrong i'm not i'm not i'm not decrying those factors at all i'm not pretending they don't exist i'm not pretending that they don't influence either individuals or individual decisions or decisions in aggregate what i'm saying is i think that the the levers that move in this debate as a whole are you know do not rest you know fully where you think they rest or fully where that argument assumes they rest politicians' power is much more limited. And although lobbying does exist, I, I don't think that this, that even though you could argue that there has been a degree of state capture by the oil industry, even if there hadn't been state capture by the oil industry, even if the oil industry had consistently said, no, we're not going to meddle in politics, we're not going to fund politicians, we're just going to get on with our jobs and pump some oil. You know, I don't think we'd have solved climate change if that was the case. I think that we'd still be where we are today, largely because we're just waiting for solar to get cheaper. If you want to, to boil it down to a single economic number, which I, you know, I don't think is an unwise way of simplifying the debate, even though I'm fully accepting that that doesn't give you, you know, the complete nuance, obviously, because it is necessarily simplification. But the simple fact of the matter is that if you want a single number determines where you are in the energy transition, the price of solar is that number, yeah, or the price of solar plus storage, if you want to get a bit more technical about it, right? Yeah, or the solar so, capacity, because I mean, it also takes a take. Well, the solar capacity is a function of price. Not the solar capacity is a function of price. It. You know, you, well, I mean, that's a function of price. If if solar is cheaper to build, then people build more of it. It's, you know, it's a it's a logical progression, right? So, you know, that that's that's where I I think that we that, that's where I what I think summarizes the whole debate really is that you know where you can you can see where any society you can come up with a a massive great solution space of possible earths and in in you know pretty much all conceivable ones that we have anything like the political environment that we have on this earth that we deal with today right now anything that's even slightly similar to that it fundamentally comes down to what's the price of solar plus storage and that will say that 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 number will put you know will give you a 
a milestone in your energy transition. Um, anyway, we, we seem to wander quite a bit off your paper, we have. nevertheless. We're very fun. <laughs> but, it, but it provides a lot of context for where, you know, for, for what it explains where, uh, where, where, where the need for solar geoengineering comes from in the economy in which you find yourself, right? If you don't have, uh, if you don't, um, if you don't condense down the framing of the justification for solar geoengineering, you cannot understand how solar geoengineering operates on the political system, right? And and what you were saying is very much about the some the assumptions underpinning people's treatment of the political system. That was the the key argument about the paper that you were making, right? That people have to be consistent and rational about understanding the you know pros and cons and pluses and minuses of the political system that they're operating in and be fair-minded to it. And what I'm saying is that you can't abstract solar geoengineering from that. You have to view that as part of a wider climate solution. And my point centrally is that you are inherent in that, is understanding how and at what pace the energy transition is happening at the moment, right? And that's why I wanted to labour the point that I did, because I think understanding why the energy transition is happening as it is, when it is, and at the pace it is, is critical. Because if you if you don't understand that, you can't conceive of a future that that is that accurately reflects reality when it comes to the role of solar geoengineering. If your assumption is that we're not going to have an energy transition because oil companies are just going to keep us in hot to oil forever, then your your view will be that you know solar geoengineering is a much more dangerous social technology because it enables us to do that in theory. Whereas if your view is that the oil companies are on a busted flush and they'll be gone in thirty years, which is a you know extreme hyper interpretation of my argument then your view will be that it doesn't make a blind bit of difference do you see what i mean and you have yeah, to yeah you have I to mean, provide that political context before you I can start we, making reasoned decisions i think we probably still disagree about the underlying like i i don't think the not to beat a dead horse here but i i don't think the price of solar is is the best predictor just given that thus far solar has like i said only added to our energy capacity not and we're not actually reducing the use of fossil fuels which is the important thing well Um, yeah it's added it's added at the moment but the point is that surely you must acknowledge the finite life argument has at least some merit coal plants don't last for 500 years so eventually they're going to get replaced right yeah but there's there's enough going to get replaced with other i don't think i don't necessarily think they'll get replaced with other coal plants but i think there's there's enough coal capacity in in locked locked up assets that would far overblow the 1.5 to 2 degree. Well, I agree. Pressure. Yeah, I don't, I don't doubt it. I'm not suggesting that we won't go over 1.5. And, and that's why I think that we do need to start looking at solar geoengineering as part of the climate toolkit. So I, you know, I, I think I'm going to agree and then say if we're, if we're, this is just the main message again, it's like if we're being rightfully so, I think, pessimistic about the prospects of meeting 1.5 or 2, we should be just as worried about the prospects of solar geo even further slowing the energy transition and other being used being put towards other malevolent ends but you still you you, you still hold the view do you that you you think that solar geoengineering is likely to or certain to slow the transition that 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 remains your view is that correct yeah i think once one once one consistently adopts these pessimistic assumptions or the uh, assumption of non-compliance of the powerful like i call it that one one is led to 
But if that's the case, then why uh, would all of the show, all the studies done on individuals show the opposite effect, that the moral hazard effect, classic, the classical moral hazard effect works in the opposite direction, that people become more reticent about climate inaction than when they, you know, shown the instruments of solar geoengineering torture, to give a Galilean analogy, mm-hmm. yeah. than they were previously. You know, it, it, do you think the politicians are un- uniquely different in their reasoning, that they don't care about the fear of solar geoengineering? I mean, but, you know, bear in mind that the same people who were doing these experiments are also voters, right? If, so, if politicians say, well, look, we've had a big bung with the oil companies, we've decided solar geoengineering, solar geoengineering is great, and that's what we're going to do from now on. We're going to get rid of all this climate mitigation stuff, then, you know, do you think the populace would really swallow it? It sounds unlikely to me. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think I'd say two things. One, or maybe three things. One is that it's those, those studies for the most part are conducted on, on individuals. And we know that individuals' preferences aren't always, especially when it's the preferences of, of the poor, not that that's what these studies focus on, but aren't always reflected in in policy decisions. And then the second thing I'd say is, again, like it's it's early days here, right? So we don't we don't know how people's preferences or or thoughts about this technology will unfold moving forward. Like in most of these studies, it was people who are were just hearing about it, right? And they were like, okay, I'll, I'll mitigate more. But maybe once once the technology gets solidified in the in the public narrative and people are more comfortable with it. It seem it seems to me once again like holding constant this non-compliance of the powerful assumption that there's a real possibility that it's it's used and abused and the the public narrative shifts. Yeah, I think you make an interesting point there. There's actually been some recent work which I can't cite off the top of my head, but generally people are quite they form their opinions quite quickly about new technologies and right. they're very reluctant to change those opinions. It's frustrating because I'd like to go into a bit more detail about it. It's an interesting study. And I think normally when something like that crosses my desk, I will write to the people just to, I've never gone into this on a podcast, so just a, a minute or so on this. Whenever I find an interesting study that I'd like to know more about, I will consistently write to the authors. And if you've come across an interesting study that we haven't covered, it's, you know, in most cases, it's not because we haven't bothered trying, it's because the authors are a bit mic shy and don't want to come on. And, you know, we do ask a lot of people to come on and they decline for various reasons. You know, probably among those, either spoken or unspoken, is the podcast a bit shit. I'm not sure how dominant this is. It might be that people are just terminally shy and that's why they end up in academia. But anyway, we can argue about that effect in due course. But it's not for lack of trying. And I think that that specific study that we're currently gnashing about is one of the ones that we have asked them to come on and chat about. So if you know the authors and you'd like to hear from them, then give them a nudge, tell them to come on Reviewer 2, and we'll give them a good kick in. So you said that you referred to closing comments about 10 minutes ago. So I think we've got oh, quite yeah. a lot of closing. <laughs> so is there anything in your paper that you think that we haven't fully covered, fully understood, or generally been slightly useful about or not? No, I mean, I think I think we got to the heart of maybe our disagreements, I think. Maybe the one other message from the paper that maybe got lost is that one thing the paper is trying to do is is reframe the debate about moral hazard a little bit. So much of the debate has focused on whether or the the conversation around solar on um, moral hazard has 
has focused on whether solar geo will be used to slow the energy transition. Um, and the assumption there often seems to me to be that if, if the answer is yes, this entails that SAI should not be, or solar geo should not be researched. Yeah, I mean, just to not, I don't want to keep going on about David Key's opinions because there's a lot of other commentators in this space, but he was quite early and quite influential. So he, and he said that, you know, a degree of moral hazard or classical moral hazard is acceptable. You know, it's rational right. to assume that people will do a little bit less less mitigation, even if that is only a small amount, because solar geoengineering reduces the risk. It would be irrational for them not to. So, you know, I, I don't necessarily think those those points are necessarily hugely controversial as a, you know, as a matter of degree on these things, right? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I think what I'm proposing is is that we assume that the answer is yes in a broader sense than than maybe just the the quote unquote rational mitigation deterrence, but that we assume that solar geo will slow the speed of the energy transition via the mechanisms that we potentially disagree about but have discussed. And then we we ask whether research or deployment is is still called for on those assumptions. So the, the kind of closing closing sentence, I think, of the paper is something like, you know, the right way of understanding the choice we're presently facing is is between insufficient mitigation today on the one hand, and then on the other and even more heel dragging facilitated by solar geoengineering, SAI, plus bestowing on future decision makers the ability to to do something about it. So the ability to ameliorate some of the consequences of that. Okay. So you're actually sort of thinking it was almost like a one-two punch situation. But so your solar geoengineering is today causing you a problem in that you are using it as an excuse not to mitigate, but then you're potentially handing down a terrifyingly powerful technology to people who are currently in short trousers, but will soon be in control when we're all being wheeled into our care homes. And that might be an inherently corrupting technology that will let them do nefarious things with the world. And we can enjoy our sunset years watching everything go into hell in a handcart. That's your concern. Is that correct? Or, I mean, I, I don't think I'm taking that negative. Of st- I'm saying like, it's it's also giving future decision makers the potential ability to to ameliorate some of the the impacts of of warming, right? That's the point of of the technology. Yeah, but, but the point is, is that they're going to unleash technology right. which is inherently hard to control, right? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Okay. So the 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 main thing that I just wanted to add is that it's it's supposed to be, and maybe maybe you think this has already happened, but it, just a slight reframe of the moral hazard debate in that I'm proposing that we we assume that solar geo will be used in illicit ways, but that we don't infer from that that it shouldn't be researched, given that we should also be very pessimistic about the the speed of the energy transition. So that, that yeah, would be I mean, my I, I don't I don't think that's a hard position to defend because we don't live in a perfect world. So you promised me an argument about solar geoengineering and uh, you've given me one. And so I'm not going to be coming to you for a refund. But I will, of course, um, as is traditional, reject your paper for all the myriad <laughs> issues that we've come up with. Most annoyingly, your fence sitting. I want to know who's wrong. I want to start a massive fight. And I want you to be the arbiter of who's got the first punch in. And it didn't happen. I'd like to come back after your thesis or, or otherwise and tell me who's right and who's wrong. And so in the absence of that, I'm going to use my privileged position of absolute authority to throw you out of the studio. So thank you very much for coming on. 
you are officially rejected by reviewer two and i look forward to hearing more from you in due course when you are going to tell me whether frank beerman or david keith is wronger than the other one thanks for coming on thanks for having